I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Professor Veena Sahajwala. Veena, you are somewhere down in Australia. I am somewhere up in the UK, but uh, by the magic of podcastery, we can uh, have a conversation. Although it is it is your evening, I think, and my morning. But um, thank you very much for joining us and, and welcome to, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Well, look, we're going to talk about a few things today, um, not least the work that you're doing in materials research and science around steel and ceramics uh, and your overall work in, in reforming and recycling. But before we do that, could you just give a little bit of an overview of, I suppose, your background and what's brought you to this point in time, um, just to give us some context for, for the discussion we're going to have? Yeah, um, Alex, that's a very good uh, question to start with. Uh, I, uh, you know, lived the early part of my life. I was born in Mumbai, um, and uh, for people who who know a little bit about uh, Mumbai, um, you know, it's it's one of those places in India that's so fascinating. Um, there's there's industries, there's lots of people, so much going on, and I guess from from the context of thinking about how we how we use our products how we repair it and keep products um, you know in our lives for a lot longer um, that supports local economy and and supports um, the guy down the street who might be fixing your shoes all of these little things that that I grew up seeing in in Mumbai um, you know had a big role to play in my life because I think I was really fascinated with how you know commerce and and you know basically entrepreneurship and, and all of this would come together. And it all meant that, you know, I guess sustainability and use of products in a way that kept products alive for a lot longer time was, was already well and truly a concept that was accepted. Now, fair enough, it was because of necessity and people um, couldn't necessarily always afford to buy new things all the time. But I just remember, you know, one pair of school shoes in a year and, and it had to last the whole year. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I, that's not that's not just unique to Mumbai, is it? I think a lot of us who grew up in the well, for me, it was the seventies, as we were saying before, um, before this began. You know, that that that's a culture I remember well. Um, but anyway, interesting background. So now um, we flash forward to today, and you are a professor of, or the pref, sorry, the professor of material science at um, the University of New South Wales. And part of that remit is the oversight of the Smart Centre for uh, Sustainable Materials Research. Can you, again, just give a little bit of context for what that is and, and the work that you and your group there are doing? Yes, yeah, so a smart center. Uh, when I founded it uh, more than about a decade ago, I was very much about you know really challenging the norm that some things were automatically classified as if they were not recyclable, um, and and it was sort of understood that oh well it's too hard to recycle it's never going to work. Um, but I guess for me fundamentally it was actually challenging um, that notion that um, you know we couldn't recycle some products. So when when we first started it was very much about yep we of course need to have fundamental research um, to uh, to basically show that it can be done in our labs um, but also at the same time you know working and partnering uh, with industries who are excited about the concept that um, you know recycling and looking at rather complex products in a whole new light um, could actually present uh, fantastic new opportunities in the long term so smart center was really um, set up because we wanted to be able to both do fundamental science um, and also at the same time look at the translation 
of that uh, fundamental science into practice and collaborating with with our industry partners. More and more, as uh, me and my team are getting embedded in decarbonisation, I find it really fascinating the partnerships that are forming between academia and uh, the real world, I will say in appalling air quotes, but academia and industry. And there are so many interesting interesting collaborations. And the one, uh, the, the way that I found my my direction to you, if you like, was uh, through a, an article in the Times about a month ago, I think it was, and it was talking about research, specifically the research you were doing around the use of both coffee grounds, but also uh, recycled tires to lower the carbon um, in the manufacturing of, I think it was specifically steel. I know since then you and I have talked, you've explained that ceramics and, and other materials have a role here, but Let's start there because, I mean, honestly, I mean, that, A, that article pleased me because it was so specific about coffee grounds. That's mad. Can you, can you just, yeah, give some, again, give us a little background to how that, how did that come about? How do you find this route in to these interesting combinations of both recyclable materials, but also a process where you can affect such change? In the world of business and people talk about vertical integration and we hear often these terms in business. I guess what I, I always love to think about in my own headspace, but why can't we think about lateral integration? And when we think about lateral integration, suddenly you can basically say, well, there should be no boundaries between, you know, industries and what might be coming in from one area where waste uh, or end of life products is no longer useful in its current function. And so tires are a good example, right? I mean, um, you know, when a tire no longer is roadworthy and it's not safe to use it as a tire, uh, it doesn't mean that fundamentally the materials that are in a tire are no longer useful. Um, physically might not function as a tire in a safe manner, but from a chemical perspective, from a materials perspective, those basic molecules in rubber are still there. So why would we not look at its life in a whole new form? And this is where, of course, the journey for me all, all those years ago started, where it was very much about challenging the notion that, oh, you know, all you can do with it is, you know, use it for a little civil, um, you know, road base or, or you just have to burn it to get energy. I think it was really about challenging the norm that it's got to be put to really high value manufacturing and high value manufacturing in a way that also supports the needs uh, of our economy globally. So one of the things, of course, that, um, you know, we've been doing is looking at well, what are those molecules? And could those molecules actually be put to really good use? And one of the fundamental molecules, of course, that uh, you know is there as part of the overall structure, and the elements are basically carbon and hydrogen. So the question in my mind was, well, what if you could actually release that as a hydrogen molecule inside an actual manufacturing process? So the ability to have access and isolate and liberate them inside a steelmaking furnace was an obvious question because to me it was really about saying, well, it's got enough carbon, so it can actually replace coal and coke, the traditional materials that are used in steelmaking. But that bonus presence of hydrogen meant that almost it was that curiosity that said, oh, I wonder if this could actually deliver bigger benefits than traditional coal and coke. And of course, that's again counterintuitive because you tend to think, well, if I've got waste and I'm using waste in a manufacturing process, oh, surely it's got to be bad. Um, but I think this was where, of course, challenging the norm came in, where, you know, if you know it's got enough hydrogen in 
tires. And if you could, as long as you could liberate those molecules inside steel making uh, furnaces, why should it be bad? Because here we are all these years later talking about hydrogen. But actually, ironically, when we started all of that work, that was in a way why, in my mind, it was all about green steel because you could then suddenly go, okay, I know I need a certain amount of carbon in the process of making steel, which is there in those tires as well, but I've got this fantastic hydrogen as well. And I guess, you know, this is really where that journey of reform can happen because now we're looking at using those elements in a completely different way. But in, in the case of green steel, it was even better because it was all about liberating that in situ inside the steelmaking furnace. So what that then meant is you were also thinking about how it could be done in a cost-effective manner, but more importantly, could it be done in a way that would be acceptable and good for a steelmaker? Because if I'm a steelmaker, I'm really also wanting to know how this is gonna have an impact on my manufacturing process. And this is where the win-win outcome was that from a steelmaker's perspective, we actually proved that it actually delivered uh, better outcomes than using uh, coal and coke. That's incredible. So what, how, how does, yeah, what, what kind, in terms of the quality of the product that comes out? It's the actual process itself, because of course, you know, as we're talking about hydrogen, as we're talking about how these, you know, materials, you know, this rubber is actually now transforming and that transformation allows it to now, instead of being some complex molecule, which is what's there in a rubber um, uh, product, it's actually more about liberating those small molecules. And these small molecules, which are extremely reactive, they can actually participate in those reactions that a steelmaker needs to see happening inside the steelmaking furnace. Because when you wanna produce metal like steel, you need to actually have iron that is basically obtained inside that steel making furnace. So the production of that basic metal iron, and of course steel is an alloy of iron and carbon and other elements. You want to make sure that I can actually keep producing that. So the efficiency gains came from the fact that the reactions in fact were promoted in a far more efficient manner inside that steel making furnace. And, and we've got these fascinating you know, visuals where inside our own furnaces in our lab, we could actually watch these reactions taking place in front of our very eyes. And I've got to tell you in the early days, it was this, it was a fixation. I had to keep watching these videos over and over again, just to look at it and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And this was happening in our labs, of course, in the early days. So I think you can imagine for, for all of us, myself and of course our researchers, um, it was one of those things that it gave us goosebumps every time we watched the video. So, so that was the lab stage. So you've obviously moved on since then. What phase of research and development are you in at the moment and what kind of scale of uh, production is possible as of now? So for us, really that whole partnership with the steel industry in Australia started um, you know, at that time. And we wanted to be able to, of course, show that uh, we can achieve those outcomes in an actual industrial scale furnace, uh, which meant that we needed uh, to collaborate and partner with industry. And uh, you know, long story short, I mean, 
um, all credit to you know Australian manufacturers that uh, here we are not only doing more research in this space but also having done industrial evaluations and and testing on that scale furnace which of course steel making furnaces electric arc furnace um, for in this case uh, is still by no means a small furnace so to to really have that support um, from steel making industry to do all the work uh, where now we have got evidence that even um, on a full-blown um, you know actual industrial scale furnace it delivers those uh, benefits from an efficiency point of view um, is is you know, something that I'm always going to be grateful for, because I think unless and until we take it up to that industrial scale, you know, we can never say that this is going to work. Um, and also the Australian Research Council, so the ARC that actually funded um, the research meant that, you know, it's like anything else, you take um, big risk when you're talking about a brand new blue sky idea. And uh, to be able to have funding, uh, it, it just goes to show that uh, that's such a critical foundation. Uh, for research, um, you know, it's not just about having an idea in your head, uh, but it's about having that resource that you need, you know, just basically being able to do those rather difficult experiments in the lab, but enough confidence in showing that the science works and, and really proving that the scientific hypothesis that we had actually started to develop at the time uh, was working, you know, I mean, and to me, it was important that groundwork, that scientific foundation, uh, which then meant that we could actually um, show to, to industry in Australia that this was something that, um, that can work. Um, and I guess, interestingly, at the time, uh, what did help slightly is the fact that uh, this research won the Eureka Science Prize here in Australia. Um, so I have to say that that uh, certainly does help a lot when, <laughs> when you do win uh, these kinds of uh, science prizes that um, industry looks upon that as a, as a really important uh, moment when they can kind of look at scientific research um, and, and to really appreciate the fact that it's time has come to take it out of the labs and into, into an industrial scale. Today or this week or this month, what, what kind of stage is this at? Are we still in demo phase on a, at a steel plant or, or where, where are you in that cycle of scaling up into eventually what becomes an actual value chain or business model? Where, where are you now? Mm. So we've got basically an industry partner um, here in Australia who's uh, you know looking at different ways in which we can introduce uh, these types of uh, materials into into steel making. Uh, we've got polymer injection technology, so that's um, coming in through an injection um, process, and that's something that. Uh, because we've been running it um, on industrial scale furnaces, uh, we've got evidence that shows that green steel does work. Um, and, and that's really where we're at, where on an industrial setting, we've been able to show um, that it makes sense commercially as well to do that. Um, and, and that is why, of course, when the early days, when we started with uh, our industry partner, at the time, it was very much about proving that it makes sense from an operations perspective, but also that it makes sense from, from a commercial perspective. But even more so, more and more now, of course, as the world has moved further and further into that determination that we're going to be heading towards decarbonization and we want to find many pathways to, to reduce our carbon footprint, uh, we've got companies who are supporting us in the research journey 
um, are also looking at you know, increasing the amount of these types of resources, whether they are tires or plastics as sources of um, carbon and hydrogen inside a steelmaking furnace. So that's where we're at. Yes, in an ideal world, we'd love to completely eliminate the need of coal and coke in, in an electric arc furnace. Um, and I know we'll get there because I think some of the uh, new research that we've been doing that whole sort of next generation of green steel is really about proving that um, you know, a time will come when we'll be able to show that uh, whatever the pathways are for introducing these materials inside the furnace, that it delivers a win-win outcome for the steelmaker as well as uh, for our environment. Um, so I think to me, you know, the credit to the steelmaker in this case, Molikov, who's actually been very committed uh, to, to really supporting that R&D in this way has been very important. To what extent are you looking to take this overseas or, or does it stay because of the nature of funding? Is it, is it focused entirely in Australia at the moment? Is there any opportunity for international projects? What's your view on that at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. From our point of view with our partners, our steelmaking partners, the goal is very much that um, we want to be able to take the technology out to the world. And, and indeed, that's where um, they're being approached by many, many steelmakers to look at the possibility of uh, really taking this technology out to other parts of the world. Because I think as we are finding, um, you know, more and more industries are committed to reducing um, their carbon footprint. And, and of course, you know, who doesn't have lots and lots of spare waste tires <laughs> uh, locally available that they could find. So I think for a steel maker to really access uh, these types of resources like waste tires locally, um, and, and that's really an incentive as well that, um, they can really uh, reduce their carbon footprint by, by doing recycling. So that alignment of recycling and manufacturing and reducing um, carbon footprint is really a whole new shift in the mindset. And, and I always like to think that if you've got steelmakers across the world who are really interested in this kind of work, it just goes to show that um, for many, many industries, uh, this may well be something that they're thinking about. They probably haven't considered what kind of waste resources might be suitable for their operations though. But this is where, of course, new research can really um, shine a light on uh, where our future lies in terms of aligning recycling and reforming with manufacturing. Yeah, well, that, that neatly takes us into kind of example two, if you like. So we talked a bit about steel. When you and I first connected, you also mentioned the work that you're doing in the ceramics industry. So let, let's look at that as a kind of different kind of case example. What, what has been your route into that? And I'm assuming that's not also the tire recycling model. So what, what, what are the materials that you're bringing to bear there? And, and again, what stage is the research at? Yeah, so in that particular case, the two key materials that we're using are our waste glass and textiles. And, um, you know, from our point of view, again, you know, it's, it's just really asking this question that, Yes, as much as we all need to reduce our consumption of uh, textiles and that throwaway society that uh, we have just become over a period of time because it was just so so cheap and it was just easy to throw it away. Um, but even if you even if you look at you know where textiles when they do reach the end of their lives and garments that then are no longer fit for wear, um, you know we shouldn't be just throwing it away into landfill. Um, the fact that at, at a very basic level. Um, there's still a lot of value in, in our textiles, whether they are our natural materials or synthetic materials, 
the ability to actually think about reform where it becomes part of a whole new product, doesn't have to come back to life as a garment. It can actually come back to life as something else we have in our homes, not our clothes, but our hard ceramics. And of course, again, ceramics is something that, you know, we just take for granted, right? I mean, we've got tiles at home, for example, our floor tiles. Um, and that's that's a good case in point, such a, such a, shall we call it, everyday product. We probably never give it a second thought. Um, but yet it's an important part of our lives, whether it's in our homes or in our workplaces. So I think it's, again, asking the question that what if we could manufacture, you know, our, our basic products, uh, and especially when we want hard-wearing products like our tiles, what if we could manufacture that out of waste glass? And what if um, the color in these uh, products could come from waste textiles? You know, you then have got a solution that almost sort of says, you know what, this could be done anywhere in the world. Because again, you know, we've got plenty of access to, to broken glass and, and old clothes. So I think it's also in a way that that notion of thinking beyond traditional recycling and saying this could well be a whole new form that these materials and very unlikely combination, you know, you never think about recycling glass and textiles together because one's a, a really hard product and the other's, uh, you know, beautiful and soft, um, you know, fabrics and materials. So in a way, very unlikely partners coming together uh, to create a whole new functioning product. So the example of green ceramics in there, that journey is very much now that we are at the phase of um, you know, commercialization, uh, that commercialization journey has been funded uh, through a grant here from our New South Wales um, state government um, through the Office of the Chief Scientist and Engineer um, with, a, with a funding program called Physical Sciences Funding. And that's really been very important for us in that commercialization journey because you could do all the research in the world, but if you don't actually get it out into the hands of end users and really try it in a real world setting you don't actually have that evidence to show that it does work outside a lab environment so yes you need all the engineering data that you of course have to produce you have to test it um, in in all sorts of different ways but once you've done that you have to put it into the hands of end users and and get end users to really try it in that real world setting and be convinced you know it's not just about um, oh, the product has got all the right engineering properties, but what about the designers who might want to put it into various, um, you know, settings inside apartments and homes? These designers will look at it from that lens. So it's got to really um, fulfill the requirements, both from a hardcore engineering point of view, but also aesthetically, it's got to be appealing because otherwise people are not going to use it in their homes. I was about to say, so one is a process uh, benefit and the other is a recipe benefit. But of course, the whole point going back to steel is that carbon and hydrogen are very much part of the, the recipe per se. It's not just a process uh, that the steel goes through. It is part of the recipe. So that, that's interesting. So I have this image in my mind of you having this little band of researchers who each own a material desperately trying to find a new source. For it. Is that is that how it works or how does that what's the origin of, of the, some of the ideas because they're not all I don't think I'm crazy for saying this they're not all immediately apparent <laughs> so so how does that process uh, of the very early stage identification of a possibility work 
Yeah, I, I guess it suffices to say that it starts at the rubbish bin at our home, where, where there's a constant battle where I think my husband, who's a clean freak, is trying to kind of tidy up and, you know, throw it away. And I'm constantly going and retrieving that out of the rubbish bin. Um, and so therefore, we've created a, a little sort of area at our home where, where once something is retrieved out of the rubbish bin, and once I'm sort of looking at going, oh, no, 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 this is this is too good to be, uh, you know, for us to be throwing it away it 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 actually has a place a special place in our in our home so suffice us to say that's where it all starts and of course as you can imagine you know once you have a place like that there's no shortage of of uh, products that um, keep kind of resurfacing so whether it's you know food packaging or whether it's it's indeed broken a broken um you know a piece of um, i guess an electronic device uh, they all land up on on that um, on that table, little table at home. Uh, but I guess it's interesting, isn't it? That you know, it's it's almost one of those things where once we all feel really strongly about something, it's it's that both the head and the heart that then come together. Then to 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 actually then bring that in a way in that context in a laboratory setting is a whole nother challenge. So, so it is, it is a challenge where you can kind of go, okay, uh, let's sit down, you know, we all sort of come together and then, you know, someone might go, okay, cool. You know, I, I think we need to go back and, and just understand and analyze the properties of this, this fabric or, or um, this glass. Um, and there might be someone who's already studying ceramics and they might go off and, and analyze those properties. And then someone who might look at um, this fabric and go and analyze that. And so it's, it's very much about that creativity that comes from, you know, all of us getting together. And it's, it's such an exciting moment because it can be one of those things where the conversations just sparked off by the fact that we're all challenging each other. Uh, but at the end, we all also recognize that unless and until we can then show that we've made a prototype um, in our own micro factories, um, we can't see it for real. So that sort of next stage of, you know, even in our own micro factory to create something that that is viable um, is, is the point when we all get super excited. Having brought you right back to the origins of some of these processes, let, let's flip to the point at which you're starting to work with industrials. And I'm, I'm just wondering what you've learned from that experience, because clearly that point at which you bring in an industrial partner is a bit of a, that must be a total switch of headspace because the, the kind of the energy or the interest or the expectation has to be, it has to shift a little because the partner wants something different as an outcome so what what have you learned or observed from that process both on you know how you and your uh, group need to work but also what are you learning about the industrials from that when it comes to interacting with the industry we always have to respect the fact that they're running a business um, and for them that's always going to be the primary focus you know as much as they love the research and the science and get excited about new ideas then I have to say, you know, they all get really excited about, you know, every time we have our meetings and discussions about what could this lead to, you know, that, that questioning. So even if we've got all kinds of new scientific ideas, um, you know, very supportive uh, at an industrial scale to think, okay, well, this could be that, or that's what we could be doing. But there's also always that practical sort of question associated with it so even before we start to talk about is this 
going to become a commercial reality, we then have to think about, okay, let's all work together in terms of thinking about practically how we would deliver that, right? Because it's one thing to do it in a laboratory setting with our small furnaces and our small modules, but then when you're actually starting to take it out into an industrial setting, it's about knowing that you can deliver it and do it on that scale at which they want to operate. Um, so, you know, if you were looking at replacing, you know, coal and coke uh, in an electric arc for a steel making process, you would want to know how am I going to meet those requirements in terms of um, the material and the job it has to do. So not just the physical delivery of the material and what it's going to look like, uh, but once it gets inside the furnace, um, does it actually do the job that it's meant to do? So it's all of these questions that, of course, you need science for that, but you also need to know that in a real-world furnace, there are many other complicated things going on, and your lab furnace is almost a nice, simple, isolated zone in which you can study that reaction in a lot of detail. But when you're talking about a larger scale furnace, there are so many other phenomena, competing phenomena that are going on. And so it's also exciting in a way, challenging yet exciting to think that, oh, I wonder if this is gonna kind of do this or is it gonna go down the path that I think it will? So there's also those questions that kind of uh, literally pull you apart in many different directions. Um, and I guess uh, in a way it's that scientific sort of thought experiment that happens in your head because you've gone from perhaps a little tiny baby furnace into a larger furnace. And I guess in my head, it's always that, that visual. It's almost like sometimes I get up from a dream and I go, oh my gosh, that was, that was a pretty scary dream <laughs> because you also think about all the things that could go wrong. <laughs> and, and so, yes, it's, it's always going to be that constant, I guess, uh, journey of, of understanding how do you deliver it, um, you know, at that another scale that takes it out of the lab into, into a real world setting. Yeah. And all the implications as well, beyond, beyond the furnace or whatever that kind of central component is, the, the, the implications for supply chain and business models and partners is that do you do you get involved in the in the in that stage or in that kind of part of the the thinking around this or do you tend to sort of focus more on the material science pure and simple how how far does your influence and uh interest i suppose extend down that value chain the commerce side of it is always going to be something that industry is a lot better than we can ever be they know their business they know you know, how to deliver something in an economically viable manner and really understanding the supply chains of materials. So we actually learn so much and we give a lot of credit to our industry partners where um, they give us that guidance and, and we talk about those things. And of course, uh, that's always of interest to me, um, but I think, you know, we don't have that full knowledge and industry partners are absolutely the experts when it comes to understanding the commercial feasibility of an idea. And so part of that excitement for us and our team of scientists and engineers is always to learn from our industry partners and to understand how could we help and do, do things that might make an idea you know, commercially attractive for our industry partners. So I'm not saying we have all the answers on day one, but I think that's again, part and parcel of the journey and it's a learning journey. Um, but that's 
exactly why it's a collaboration. You know, it's a partnership uh, that as much as, you know, we might understand our science, um, they also have to be mindful of running a business and understanding the commercial feasibility. So I think this is where the partnership of science and, and business and the two working together is, is basically the recipe that we need to bring innovation and new ideas to become ultimately commercially viable. If we sort of step back from the specific research that you're involved in, I think you're kind of, when, you, when, when I look at you and the work of the uh, Materials Science Group and uh, the Smart Centre, really it's about that an interest in those hard and hardest to recycle materials, right? I mean, if we're going to reduce it to the simplest statement, it's about how can we make use of these hard to recycle materials? And I know, again, in our prep chat for this uh, conversation, you talked about something which I'd not, I've not really heard about or thought about in, in my kind of process of thinking about decarbonisation, which is kind of quite a, a strategic idea of um, decentralization of, of manufacturing and how that might open up more opportunities for for real decarbonization in in all kinds of situations around the world now i probably just explained that appallingly because again it was a new new idea to me but can you just tell us a little bit about like this idea of decentralization and why does it matter in the context of uh, carbon abatement decarbonization uh, and those sorts of themes. When we think about, you know, manufacturing and making materials, whether it's metals or any of the other things and things that we use in our homes, I mean, we've talked about green ceramics, the tiles. I think in all of these cases, really sort of asking the question, if a product had to travel, uh, you know, shorter distances um, to get to the end user, and equally, if the raw materials had to travel shorter distances to get to the factory, um, you then have already reduced, uh, you know, that transport uh, mileage. And, and by reducing transport, you've already now started to bring down the carbon footprint. But asking the question that is it really possible that we can imagine a, a situation where decentralization and the ability to manufacture high quality products could be done on a scale that is right for, for that particular purpose. So in this case, if we're saying that, look, the purpose is really not to capture a global market, but if the purpose is really to capture a regional market, um, and you can almost imagine a situation where in that regional setting, there's more than enough waste resources that can be fed into that regional um, manufacturing uh, solution, then that regional manufacturing solution doesn't need to be a mega factory. In fact, this is exactly why we've turned it upside down on its head and we're saying, no, actually, it makes sense if it is a micro factory because then your investment is a lot smaller. You're now looking at raw materials, which are coming from waste, not coming over long distances, but rather coming over relatively shorter distances. The product is manufactured on a scale that is right for purpose. So here we are talking about not economies of scale, but we're talking about economies of purpose because of course your market could also be regional. So the idea that you can actually create this whole new way of doing manufacturing hinges upon the fact that as long as you can make high quality products that is fit for purpose and that end users will be able to use it because it does the job it's meant to do. So if you're making a floor tile out of 
waste materials like glass and textile. And this green ceramic has got all the right engineering properties. And of course, people who are in your regional areas are actually excited about the possibility of using recycled products. It means that you can actually achieve that notion of what you know, a decentralized manufacturing solution could look like in the future, because we will always be generating waste resources, whether they are our glass or tires or textiles. So we don't want to be taking these waste resources over long distances. And, and the other side of the, the picture is that we'll always be using, you know, tiles and materials um, in our homes. So if we were actually looking at, you know, local production, and supporting local economies, you've suddenly achieved both a reduction in the carbon footprint, but you've also enabled local economies to flourish. So in a way, if you can achieve both of those, you can actually do it by thinking about micro factories and a, and a decentralized way of manufacturing. Yeah, I think that there's so many important points in that. When you think about all of these uh pieces of work that you have ongoing at the moment what 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 are you most excited about next and what are you what do you see happening and then in the kind of short term what's next on the horizon for you uh, and also for the the teams you're working with there are of course uh, so many things that i'd love to be able to do and, and, and a huge pile of rubbish that you're still sorting through exactly right exactly right um but i guess again you know if you think about where the needs of the world are going to come from and of course, we've talked about decentralization, but when we think about how we're going to actually have um, energy and, and storing energy and batteries, I think from, from our point of view, that whole question of if this is going to become the way of the future, then thinking about the materials that go into making these types of products like our batteries um, is an important question because for us, uh, again, a lot of those materials and those resources are limited on our planet. And so when we are talking about the kinds of metals and, and rare earths um, that, that go into making these kinds of um, uh, energy storage um, devices, you know, when we, when we talk about, you know, um, you know, renewable energy, we need to think about where fundamentally all the, the materials that go into making the, the products. And that's why when I bring to forefront the question around energy, it's about saying that the materials that go into making these devices, um, you know, are also to be seen in a way as renewable materials. So starting to bring that thinking into bear that just because your battery might evolve over time, uh, and so it should, you know, I mean, there's a lot of research that is actually going to make sure that these uh, devices, these energy storage devices are, are going to be more and more efficient um, over time. But again, it's fundamentally that those materials that are embedded inside um, our batteries, for example, uh, can actually be harnessed over and over again, if we can find a way to manufacture and remanufacture those materials into a new form. And for us, the most exciting um, thing about that is that we know that the world is facing those challenges. So again, it's one of those things that it is a global challenge, um, but yet again, interestingly, a regional solution uh, would make a lot of sense because again we all have got batteries um, that you know for example we're thinking about batteries that are disposable in nature um, you know how would you would you just throw it away 
or would you actually say, okay, well, it's come to the end of its functioning life, but you know what, if we can unpack those materials and bring it back to life um, in new forms, uh, that would actually make it's so possible to imagine a future where on one hand we've got renewable energy uh, and then on the other hand we've got renewable materials because fundamentally that's what we're talking about here materials that can be renewed in different forms and the reason why i'm talking about this particular program is uh, we've we've just started and through funding of the australian research council um, a whole new research hub um, that is called micro recycling and this micro recycling is very much about you know addressing the rather difficult and hard problems and and the reason why i picked up on something like batteries uh, is we know how difficult it is uh, and so from that point of view it's really basically saying look we've got to start asking the difficult questions you know we've got to start saying that if we ask those questions and if we can you know understand the science, and in this case, um, you know, we literally had to um, develop a whole new word. So micro recycling was a word that, uh, you know, I had to come up with because I think in a way it captures that point that we can't just think about recycling on that larger scale. And at the micro level, there is still a lot of value in our materials um, as long as we can find a way to do that micro recycling and once we can unpack that and we can understand that science then that can go a long long way in you know showing that even the most complex products can actually be brought to life um, in many different forms so i want to i want to give credit to um to you know basically uh, the australian research council which is the the funding agency um and our industry partners i've mentioned people like molly Corp and and TES and, and indeed so many industries that support us on this journey, because this kind of collaboration that we've talked about between government and industry and research is so critical uh, to make sure that we can deliver genuinely a collective future that shows that it is possible to, to decarbonize, it is possible to deliver new jobs and deliver a better planet uh, for our future. Well, that's a great note to finish on. And just from my perspective, Ina, thank you very much for a really interesting conversation, but also one that's so rooted in possibility and opportunity rather than being rooted in problem, liability and risk. You know, it's just a very refreshing way of, of looking at the work that needs to be done. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Alex.